Hello, Monetization Nation. Today I'm joined by Andrew Davis. Andrew is a keynote, keynote speaker and a best-selling author of Brandscaping, Unleashing the Power of Partnerships, and Town Inc., Grow Your Business, Save Your Town, Leave Your Legacy. Before building and selling a thriving digital marketing agency, he produced for NBC and worked for the Muppets. He's appeared on the New York Times and on the Today Show. He's also crafted documentary films and award-winning content for tiny startups and Fortune 500 brands. Thank you so much for joining us today, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me, Nathan. I appreciate it. Can you start off by sharing with us something that you are super passionate about? Something I'm super, pa I'm super passionate about questioning the conventional wisdom. <laughs> so any, you know, whenever I find some advice that I hear over and over again, that, that seems to be counterintuitive to me, I, it's the kind of thing that I want to explore and dive into. And so for me, that's, the, I, that brings me a lot of joy, uh, you know, trying to figure out um, why everybody tells you that content has to be short in the online world, but the same people who tell you that your content's got to be short can binge watch, you know, two seasons of Stranger Things uh, <laughs> in a weekend. Uh, you know, that bothers me. So it's, th it's those kinds of things that I really get passionate about exploring and understanding and questioning and trying to figure out where the advice came from. And that's, that's, I really love that. So anyone who has a you know, a, a pee under their mattress that's bothering them uh, with some conventional wisdom that doesn't seem to sit right. I, I always, I invite them to go explore it. Can you tell us about your story, your journey to become this expert brand and content creator? Well, sure. Yeah. I started in the television business actually. So uh, I went to school for television and film and uh, right out of college, I was working at a local television station, producing two shows uh, a, a week. Um, one was a, a late night call and talk show. The other one was, was a, a weekend medical call and talk, talk show, which actually was the highest rated medical call and talk show uh, on, on the air at the time, which was pretty easy because it was the only medical call and talk <laughs> show at the time. That's a good strategy. Uh, if you want to be the biggest, you know, you find a niche and you'll be the only one. Oh, one of my biggest, one of the things I learned in television was to, to, you know, find a content hole um, and, you know, find something that people haven't exploited yet and then take advantage of it. And medical, medical television was one of them. Unfortunately, it was a weird show. It was like, you know, basically the FCC, you know, kind of mandates that you can't give medical advice on the air. So yeah. all we could do was like, listen to people's phone calls, tell them what it might be, and then always just tell them to go see a doctor uh, and get some help. So it was the, it was the same answer every time. <laughs> but anyway, I worked in local television. Then I, I started producing for uh, some, some major television shows like the Today Show. I worked for Charles Kuralt, which is one of the greatest television writers, in my opinion, of all time. He was the guy that, that did uh, on the road uh, segments and started CBS Sunday Morning. If you've ever seen that show, you know the kind of style of writing. Uh, that he he kind of taught and promoted. Uh, and then I, I got my dream job. Actually, I worked at the Jim Henson Company with the Muppets, uh, which was awesome. And uh, that's where I met my wife. That was the highlight of that job, actually. Um, and actually, I learned everything I needed to know about marketing at that company. So the Jim Henson Company was, you know, is not just a content creator. You know, sure, they, they do Sesame Street. They did Bear in the Big Blue House. Uh, they did all the Muppet movies. Uh, you know, they've done all sorts of great stuff. Uh, but at the end of the day, they make their money by selling stuff, uh, not the content itself, but the 
the merchandise product. Um, and so if you don't create content that people fall in love with and characters that people want to get to know, the Jim Henson company had nothing to sell. And that was something that ama- was just amazing to me. And when I left the Jim Henson company, uh, it was the late 1990s and it was the dot-com boom. And I, I started working uh, as a marketer for some startups. And I realized there was the same thing. You just, if you can create and build a relationship with an audience with the content you're creating, you can inspire them to buy almost anything, you know, because no one needs a, a Grover plush doll uh, unless you fall in love with Grover. And so we took the same strategy in building a bunch of uh, startups in the late 90s. And then I started a marketing and advertising agency with a journalist friend of mine named Jim Costco. We built that company until 2012 and then I sold it. And uh, since then, I've just been writing books and, and speaking around the world. So, uh, you know, well, in the last year, I've just been speaking virtually, but uh, all the all the the live events are coming back at the end of this year. So I'm excited about it. In all of these amazing things you've done in your career so far, what is the greatest home run you've hit? It's not a literal home run because <laughs> I'm not very good at ball sports. Um, I think I think the greatest home run uh, I've hit, I, I'd have, uh, that is a really tough one. Um, it's forcing me to reflect. I'd have to say it's publishing a book. Like I just... I just actually published the, the third book very, very quietly on a week ago, Monday. This is a top secret book. It's only for like professional speakers. So it's not the kind of book that I expect everybody to read. But for me, being able to uh, challenge a lot of conventional wisdom, get people excited and interested about it, uh, and then being able to codify it in something that I'm very, very proud of um, and leave a legacy that I think will long outlive me is I'm very, very proud of. And I think that for me is a home run. For, it doesn't, uh, sure, I, look, I'd like to write a New York Times bestseller and that's on my goals list, right? But I wanna earn my way there. And I, I know the books I've written, I don't think are New York Times bestsellers yet, but I, I believe they've made an impact on so many people's lives that I'm very proud of those books. So I'm working on a book, my first book, um, my first printed book called Credibility Marketing. And one of the sections in that is how we gain credibility by public through public speaking. Ah. So I would love it if you'd share with me, you know, what, what's one of your best stories or, two, you know, one or two best stories from your book and, sure. and some of the key bits of advice and takeaways. I think it boils down to what I call the journey to visionary town. <laughs> so I wrote the book with a guy named Michael Port, who's a, a, a very well-respected uh, keynote speaker. And he started a company called Heroic Public Speaking, which teaches people how to be better speakers uh, from on the entertainment side. And for me, I spent uh, the last six years kind of looking at the business side of being a professional speaker and the people who are constantly getting booked and being invited to speak at other events are the people who challenge the conventional wisdom. Like I said, they're inviting the audience to think about something new in a very new light. Uh, and they're, they're not giving how-to speeches. They're not giving you the top 10 ways or t- six steps and tricks or five hacks to get to the next step. They're actually really challenging your wisdom, your thinking, and they're, they're launching a hypothesis on what might work in the future with some good case studies and, and and, uh, and examples and some first steps to take. I think a lot of people that start speaking try to just get, deliver how-to tips and tricks. And for me, if you can Google the answer, it's not a great speech because everybody can speak about it. Uh, for me, it's all about making a trip from Expertville where it's very commodity-driven insight into what, what we call visionary town, which is, uh, which is not overpopulated. It's grassy green uh, and people are looking for new ideas and insight. Can you think of a great story of, of someone that uh, has used the principles from your book? 
and maybe a case study from your book. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, there's, there are two, two speakers that, that I, they're actually, they're a duo. So they're named Andrew and Pete. They're from, uh, they're from the United Kingdom. Uh, they run a company called Atomic and, um, they, they wanted to be kind of keynote speakers. They wanted to speak all over the world and help elevate their business and generate revenue for their business, as well as revenue from speaking because they just loved speaking in front of people. So they spoke for five years. They spoke all over Europe for free. You know, their idea was if I give enough speeches, somebody will see us in a breakout room or at a small networking event and they'll say, wow, can you speak at our big event and we'll get bigger and bigger events? Well, no one invited them to speak at bigger and bigger events. And I'm telling you, these two are good speakers. Like they do a little fun presentations. They do lots of tips and tricks. Uh, and they, they were getting fed up with doing all the free keynotes and not really seeing the big impact on their business. So they decided at, uh, three months before one of the biggest opportunities they had, which is to speak in front of 300 people at a Youpreneur Summit in, um, in London in October, I think, of 2019, and they said, you know what? We're going to stop marketing ourselves as speakers. We're not going to do any speeches between now and this new event. And we're going to just sit back and think about a new big idea. And we're going to rehearse our way to a much better speech. So they came up with a new idea called the 90-10 rule, uh, which is better than the 80-20 rule. <laughs> uh, and the 90-10 rule was, better. It's 10% better, right? They're very funny speakers. If you have a chance, you should check them out on YouTube. Just search Andrew and Pete and you know 90-10 rule and you'll find a speech by them. Uh, and so what they did was put together an, a really challenging like marketing speech about the 90-10 rule that is funny. It's got, it's got all the ingredients you need. It's got a signature bit. It's reliably delivered. It's not off the cuff. It's like beautifully ar architected and put together. Uh, and before they were off the stage at that Youpreneur Summit, somebody in the back of the room while they were speaking texted an organizer of another huge event, Social Media Marketing World, which is like the biggest social media yeah. marketing conference in the world, uh, and said, you should have Andrew and Pete, uh, you know, be your closing keynotes. I'm watching them right now in London and they're great. They're that good. You should hire them now. And they got that gig. And since then, they've been invited to speak all over the world and give the 90-10 rule because it's, it's that kind of speech. So Andrew and Pete overnight went from being breakout room success stories, meaning they got great evaluations. People loved their speeches. They always said, this is a five-star speech or a 10, 10 point speech uh, out of 10. And they, they got great evaluations, you know, in the comments, they couldn't figure out what was wrong. It, it was just until they realized they've got to have a visionary speech. It's got to have a signature bit. It's got to be entertaining and transformational for the audience. And it's got to challenge their conventional wisdom and make them think differently when they leave our session, that they became kind of really referable speakers, meaning people see it and then they ask for that exact speech. What do you mean when you say a signature bit? A signature bit is the hallmark of a referable speaker. It's like the five minutes inside of a, of a full 45 minute or 60 minute keynote that people remember and talk about constantly with other people. It, you've got to have something that is entertaining and entertaining doesn't mean funny. For me, I do a lot of funny bits. Those are my signature bits, but you know, it can be emotional in any way. It can raise tension. It could be a sad or dramatic story. It could be a transformational you know, story with lots and lots of drama, but that signature bit has to be the thing that sticks in people's minds years from now. So I, um, when I started speaking full-time in 2013, 
uh, I had a signature bit that's that's all it's called meatloaf. That's what everybody calls it. And it's about my search for meatloaf. Um, and it's a very fun bit that people love. And I still give that speech today because people say, are you going to do meatloaf? It's like your greatest hit, you know, it's, it's so, so every one of the speeches I deliver has a signature bit that I expect, or I, you know, I hone to the point at which the audience can refer to, uh, to it over and over again in a very simple way. So you've just got to make sure that your signature bit is something you like doing so that 20 years from now, when you're still giving it and you're giving it for the 10,000th time, you're not wanting to puke when they ask. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's just like, I, I mean, one of the other things in the book is is you've got to be able to be willing to constantly enhance and adjust. Right. So when I say I'm giving the same meatloaf segment, I mean, I kind of am, but if you look at the video from 2012 of me giving meatloaf, it's not, you would look at today's version and go, wow, that's completely different. So for me, the challenge is constantly making the speech better. Um, So I videotape every one of my gigs uh, that I do. Um, that I, I try to watch it within 24 hours. And then I try to, I call this the five minute method. I try to find five minutes in that speech that needs to be reworked or fixed or adjusted. Sometimes it's 30 seconds. That's just not right yet. And then I'll rehearse that for a week or two and then try it at the next event. Um, and for me, that's part of the challenge. It's part of what makes it really fun is making the speech constantly better and better. Tell me about the greatest failure or mistake that you've made in your career and, and what'd you learn from it? Having, having written a book about partnerships, I think one of the things is really truly understanding uh, how valuable partnerships can be, but also the, that you need to be very conscientious about setting up the right kinds of relationships and partnerships. And so, uh, you know, I, I think most people are very trusting people and are excited about building a future together. But I think it's really important that your vision for the partnership and the future, even if it's constantly changing, is constantly updated within the partners that you're working with. The values you have and that you stand for are the same kinds of values and you're moving forward in the, with the same kind of integrity. Uh, and, and you know, I think the last thing that's really important to that is ownership. Who owns what when you're in the middle of a partnership? And so making sure that you've ironed those things out and you're constantly readdressing them and having the hard conversations about what happens when this partnership doesn't work out. You know, the, the goal is it's supposed to, <laughs> but just like, you know, whenever you, if you get married, no one's planning on a divorce, um, you know, but it's, I think it's a good idea to have those conversations really, you know, before you sit down and ink out a partnership uh, and make sure you understand that if and when and it does go south, you understand what, who gets what and why it's going to work that way. And so the biggest mistakes I think I've made is, is uh, not following those three rules in setting up partnerships. You know, anytime it's gone south, it's because I didn't do one of those things, or I just trusted the person and thought, you know what, we have the same values. I know that person. Um, But it's the, it's the tough conversations that make a great partnership. I want to talk about your book. Um, Let's, let's talk about brandscaping. Uh, what is brandscaping? Brandscaping is really simple. It's, um, it's creating content with like-minded brands to gain access to their audience. Um, and at the end of the day, drive revenue. So in, it, it, just like in the example I was just about to talk about uh, with Converse and, and Guitar Center, it's, a, it's actually a simple example. I'll just explain it. Yeah, please um, do. Yeah. So Converse, you know, obviously wanted to sell more shoes (laughs) Um, and they were looking for new audiences because obviously, you know, if you're into the shoe world, you already know Converse and you're interested in Converse or maybe you're not interested in Converse. Uh, But they realized that when they were looking at their market analysis, 
if a famous museum musician like uh, like Justin Timberlake or Justin Bieber, I don't know why I'm into Justin's uh, or Axl Rose, you know, was wearing a pair of Converse at a concert or on TV uh, or in a social media video, all of a sudden they would start selling out that brand of Converse over the next few weeks. And they thought, well, this would be great if we could partner with Axl Rose and Justin Timberlake and Justin Bieber. That might be great for us, but we can't afford that kind of marketing. So they thought, well, you know what? Who's the next Justin Bieber? That was the question they asked themselves. And they said, well, we don't know. We're not in the music business. So they went to Guitar Center uh, and said, hey, you know what? Uh, what, what is you, what's an audience problem you have? And they, they said, well, you know what? We have people come into the store all the time. They're budding musicians or they have a band. They've just bought some new equipment and they, wanna, they want a recording studio. They want to record their songs with a professional engineer. And Converse said, you know what? Why don't we partner together? You guys know how to create music and you know what gear we would need. Let's create a studio. So they took over a dry cleaner in Brooklyn they took they gutted the whole place they turned it into a studio they staffed it with a full-time engineer six days a week and to this day you can book a free day-long recording session in that studio as long as your band can get there and all converse and guitar center want out of it is the ability to share your music how who would say no to that they don't own yeah. the music they want to share it with their audience so converse says hey look this cool band came in and this is a song they recorded here's a music video check it out brought to you by converse and guitar center says check this new band out we created a studio in partnership with converse and they get some free converse yes and they get you know so there's like some you know some some merchandising that goes along with it but the, that studio turned into 12 studios around the world built by guitar center and uh, and the the gang at at, uh, at Converse, and there's actually one in a in a in a trailer that travels all over the world as well. And they're still recording every single day and sharing music around the world. And this only works because both Guitar Center and Converse are selling more stuff as a result. <laughs> People that are Guitar Center fans that never would have bought Converse are now like, I love Converse because they invested in my music. And people who are Converse fans but never thought about making music are now interested in new bands, new music, and even starting their own music as well. So that's the perfect kind of brandscape, a long-term relationship that's designed to create content that inspires people to buy things they didn't know they needed. So yeah. how do these unconventional, unconventional partnerships lead to this unconventional success in marketing? <laughs> I, th I, think, I think it's unconventional, number one, because you have to kind of look for the non-endemic partners, meaning they're not your traditional partners. You know, Converse and Guitar Center don't seem like partners. And in most universes, as a marketer or business person, you'd say, that doesn't work. I don't get it. Um, but, you know, in the same way that, uh, chefs have partnered with the makers of Crocs. Like that's, that's, I don't know if you know that, but that's another partnership I that I find yeah, tell very us the bizarre. Story. A marketer for Crocs, um, the, the weird shoe brand, just in case people don't know it, Crocs, C-R-O-C-S, uh, was, was doing a tour in Manhattan, going through a couple of kitchens because he was a foodie. And he happened to notice at like three restaurants in a row that people, all the chefs seemed to be wearing Crocs in the kitchen. So he stopped someone and said, hey, look, I work for Crocs. I noticed a lot of people wearing Crocs. Why do you wear Crocs? And, you know, the chef was like, oh, well, like three reasons, like they're practical, they're comfortable, they clean easily because I spill stuff on it and then it's great. Uh, and they're non-skid. They don't slip on all the stuff in our kitchen. He's like, oh, I didn't know that. Um, 
And so, you know, this, this marketing person went back and said, you know, did you guys know that chefs are buying our Crocs? And they said, no, why? And he said, well, these three reasons. Um, so the, the head of marketing from Crocs called up, uh, you know, one of these chefs and said, look, what, you know, what's wrong with our shoes? Like, could we make the Crocs better for chefs? And they said, sure, I have some ideas. And all of a sudden they formed a partnership and started creating a, a chef's line of Crocs shoes that's not available in retail. You have to buy it at restaurant um, supply stores. And to me, that's like an unconventional partnership that's resulted in sales and passion for both, uh, you know, both opportunities. Restaurateurs are now featured as helping enhance the shoes. And those restaurateurs are, you know, getting employees as a result of it, not, not sales at the, at the end user. I'm not going to that restaurant just because they bought Crocs, but they're getting employees and new, new, uh, you know, new hires as a result of being kind of profiled as innovative um, restaurateurs that aren't just in the restaurant business, but helping design shoes. I'm a successful company and I, I want to implement this brandscaping strategy. Um, take me through step-by-step step of, of what you're going to, what you're going to tell me to do. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing is you need to think like Amazon's, you also bought bar. Okay. So you need to think about your clients and customers. And you know, when you go on Amazon and you're looking at any product, it'll say customers who bought this also bought this. Okay. You need to think like that. And you need to think from the closest and narrowest things. Like let's say you sell, I don't know, tax accounting software, right? If you look at that bar, even if it's an imaginary bar, we're making up in our own mind on that bar. If somebody just bought tax accounting software on that bar might be books about accounting, right? There might be uh, file cabinet stuff because you need to file your receipts and things. There might yeah. be folders and paper. There might be the calculator. I don't know if people use calculators anymore. There might be budget spreadsheets. I don't know what there are, but these are the, these are the immediate people that you should consider as your partner's opportunity, all right? So that just sets the scope and scale. And the truth is you want to start with the people that are closest to you. So like, obviously if you tell, sell tax accounting software and somebody's written a book that's called, you know, tax accounting for beginners, uh, then you want to, you want to call that person who's written that book and say, Hey, look, what does your audience struggle with? Is there anything I can help with? That's the second thing. You're not looking to immediately start a partnership. You're looking to offer your help and assistance to whoever you're going to partner with first. And a lot of people make a partnership mistake, I think, when they first just dive in and say, we want to partner and we have great things that you could send to your audience. Instead, you start it the other way around, just like uh, Jeff Cottrell did when he talked to Converse, you know, talking to Guitar Center. You want to ask what they need. And when in those conversations about what their audience needs or what they need to be more successful, you're looking for the right kinds of signals. You want to hear the partnership opportunities that sound great to you. What could you offer? What do you have? What assets, you information, insight, resources. It's not always money. Maybe you have people that could help, uh, you know, create some content for their audience. Uh, that's the, so you want to kind of identify those opportunities. And as you move farther and farther out, to be totally frank, the easy partnerships are the near ones, right? Like the tax accounting book, but the weirdest ones are going to be like, monster energy drink because you realize that your your customers who are doing accounting do it at 11 p.m at night and they're drinking monster energy drink right like that's 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 possible <laughs> but those are the partnerships that are going to be the most interesting have the in, most interesting conversations and that the most creative outcomes but don't start with those start with the ones that are close and central to you and then the third thing is after you've identified something to start partnering on is to first run a test and that means don't embark on a long-term partnership immediately. You want to try to prove 
to each other that your audience will find whatever you're sharing valuable. So you want to run some simple tests. And that doesn't mean you even need to reach out to them, to be totally honest. You could try this early. You could say, hey, I wonder if I shared a blog post from that woman who wrote the awesome tax accounting book to my audience, if they would find it useful. Do they click on it? Are they interested in it? Do they sign up for her newsletter? I wonder. I could even ask her, hey, we promoted you. Did you get a lot of signups? Because if that's the case, you're starting to see that the audience finds each other valuable and you're proving the concept before you've gone any further. And the last thing is you need to embark with the, the mindset that you're going to, you're creating something new. The content you're creating, the partnership you're working together on for the long term isn't going to live on your website or their website. It's going to live on both. And the truth is it should live in a third place. You're creating a third, what I call content brand that is outside of the purvey of, you know, either of your things. It's just designed to reach the exact same audience where the overlap is uh, and generate leads and business for both of you in the most mutually beneficial way. And sometimes that's just two partners, but uh, usually it evolves in, into more than that. So that's the kind of four-step process I'd, I'd approach uh, any partnership with. Early on in this interview, you, you talked about how at previous companies like Muppets, you you guys created great content that made people want to buy products. Mm -hmm. Can you give us some advice on how, how do we create content that increases that demand and actually drives sales? So, uh, so the first thing you, you have to identify, uh, you know, it's, this is very different than selling Muppets, right? Uh, <laughs> the first thing you have to identify is what I call the moment of inspiration. The moment of inspiration is the instant in time that sends your customer or client on a journey. All right. And most brands don't know what this is in the minds of their customers. You know, if you sell a software product, I don't know why I'm stuck on accountants and taxes today, okay. but, uh, but let's, let's just assume that you're still in this world. Uh, let's sell, let's say you, you sell accounting software. Um, usually you, you know, the point at which you're having a conversation with the client or they're signing up for your software, they're like 80 to 90% of the way through the buyer's journey already. They already know they want to work with you by the time they've asked for a demo. They, they, they assume they've gone that far. The crucial thing is better understanding the moment they decided they needed to go searching for new accounting software. And if you ask every new customer you have, remember, you should start with the customers and clients you've already got. Every time you get a new customer, the first question you should ask them is, hey, Nathan, what inspired you to dot, dot, dot? What inspired you to dot, dot, dot? This is a magical question. It unleashes the entire journey and it takes them back to the instant they realized we need a new accounting software. And maybe it went something like this. Maybe they said, oh, you know, we used uh, software X, Y, and Z for years and we couldn't get good support. And you know what? We wanted to upgrade to the new version um, and get a better enterprise level version because we're growing and their customer tech support and their salespeople never responded. That's their moment of inspiration. That's what inspired the journey. Now, it might have taken three more months before they ended up signing up with your service, but you can now better create content that's designed to help people either get to that point, mean create that point for them, or then that's, that's, the, that's the, you know, the, the trigger you're creating in their mind where they're all of a sudden realizing, oh man, is there better support? I thought I had good support, but maybe I don't. That's the point at which you can create a moment of inspiration for them when they start going on that journey. Or you need to answer their trigger question. After every moment of inspiration, a trigger question pops into the people's minds. 
at that trigger question is the first question that they need to answer before going on the next step of the journey. And most brands don't answer those questions. They're answering all sorts of other questions. How much does software cost? What's the best software? That's way down the path. But when you understand the moments of inspiration, you can create regularly scheduled content that's totally designed to create a new moment of inspiration in the minds of your audience or your friends and family, or even your customers and clients and their audiences that, that triggers a new question and that sends them on a journey they never expected where you're the only one with an answer and you're the one that gets them into your loop first. Thank you so much, Andrew, for sharing your stories and insights with us today. Here's some of my key takeaways from this episode. Number one, when we challenge our audience's ideas, they may keep thinking about our speech long after it's over. Number two, every speech should have a signature bit that sticks in people's minds. Number three, we should find a content hole, something that people haven't made content about and take advantage of it by making content first. Number four, brandscaping is creating content with like-minded brands to gain access to their audience and drive revenue. Number five, brandscaping can lead to great partnerships and huge successes. Number six, when starting partnerships, we need to make sure we have trust, the same vision, and we should talk about what will happen if it doesn't work out. To learn more about or connect with Andrew, you can find him on LinkedIn or visit his website at akadrewdavis.com. And there's links to each of those sites in the blog post for this episode at monetizationnation.com. You can also get my free ebook about passion marketing and learn how to become a top priority of your ideal customers at passionmarketing.com. You can also subscribe to Monetization Nation on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, our Facebook group, and on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for joining me for this episode. I wish you success in writing great speeches. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.